come out of our important place where people used to say she used to she's a missionary she all of these things these things have to be erased from our consciousness for this to transpire there has to be an inner working of the master of the holy spirit which is the inner workings of the master to withdraw us from that conscious awareness where that we can become nothing and the master makes it so plain that we must become of no value become a void and when we become a void then he fills that void with himself I'm hungry to be emptied out. I need help. I need support. I need your prayers. May God be merciful unto me a sinner that I might be able to remember him at all times because I have need. baptized in him. That's to be submerged, put out of sight, into the master's ability. And I need my mind changed, for I won't think it's robbery to be equal with God. As Jesus told us that we are the essence of God, but we're in the left field. We're in the bullpen. He can't use us. But the day is coming when he's going to call us out. And when he's going to give to us that which is rightly ours to every woman according to his labor, so shall it be. And I understand that God is dealing with the sad thing. And you come and you say these things and you're telling us not to dwell on the outward experiences, not to dwell on the, the shell, not to eat the husk, but to eat the germ that's in the grain, because that's where the life is. Like the young lady that got married and she was fixing her first meal for her husband and she went to the grocery store and she saw the broccoli in the freezer counter and she, they had the, the cheese poured over it and she thought it was so beautiful so she took it. She went home, she took the broccoli out, she got the water hot and she put the carton in and boiled it and served it to her husband thinking that he is going to enjoy this meal. And when he looked at it, he said, Honey, you, where is the broccoli? And she says, There it is. And he says, No, honey, where did you put it? She said, Oh, I put it away. He said, Well, let me get it, and I'll show you how to fix broccoli. We're so simple. We're so unlearned about the inner courts of the law. He wants to bring us into that relationship. I just want to say a few words if I'm talking too much. But I want you to know that Helen and I 
need your support and we need help. Look towards the master for us. Please. We're drowning and we need the leak fixed in our boat. Well, thank you, Irvin. And I, I mean, that was, that was an excellent story. Um, the thing to remember is that um, it goes back to the question that Angela asked too. Master isn't going to let any of us drown. He just isn't, okay? Because he loves us and he's got the power to take us up. So there's no question of that. And people who have a hard time meditating now, um, the effort that they put in, the desire that they have for wanting it, even if it's all misapplied, it doesn't matter. God will see what is the intent and he will take us up. Sanchi has told many stories for that. So no one has anything to worry about or to be afraid of. It's helpful the more we put in our part and make the efforts that we can make and be as remembering and as as receptive to the master power as we can be. But there's no need to be afraid or to worry. And... Uh, this is a very great path that we are on and it's a very great master that we have and he comes from a succession of very great masters and you're quite right that um, it is fundamentally one guru for all time and all place but that guru continues to incarnate as one human being after another because we need him. Okay, I think... Um, we can close and uh, with a bhajan, preferably. Yeah. I want to begin today by reading a very basic writing of Master Kapal Singh. which picks up on and deepens some of the things we were saying last night. It's from the Ambrosial Hour, and it's called The Eternal Song. It was originally the 1961 message on the anniversary of the birth of Master Sawan Singh. It begins with a quote from the Bible, actually two quotes. First is from the Gospel of John, the first chapter. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. All things were made by Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shineth in darkness, and the darkness comprehendeth it not. And the word was made flesh, and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And the second quote is from the Gospel of Mark, the kingdom of God is at hand. Master dates this July 10th, 
1961, and he says, Dear children of light, I convey my love to you all and speak to you from the core of my heart on the auspicious birth anniversary of my master, Sawan Singh, <coughs> Singh Ji Maharaj. Blessed indeed is the hour when the timeless comes into time, the formless assumes a form, and the wordless becomes the word, and the word puts on the mantle of flesh to dwell amongst us. Verily ye are, essentially and potentially, the timeless, the formless, and the wordless. The word is in you, and you live in and by the word. Though you may for the time being be living on the plane of the senses and unaware of your real identity. A tree is known by the fruit it bears. Lectures, messages, statements, and discourses of any kind, spiritual or otherwise, imparted through utterances or writings, are just idle talk when not acted upon or lived up to. Live up to the divine word, which is the word of words, the manifestation of truth. This word is hearkened by the soul. It is the eternal song which was sung ages ago, and that song produced the phenomena called the universe. When that song is heard, you will have some glimpses of the Lord and the true master. Some will have a little, some more, and some still more. Souls embedded in the master power will be lighted. The more receptive the souls to the master power, the more light they will emit. If you wish to love God truly in the most practical way, it is to love our fellow beings. Feel for others in the same way as we feel for our dear ones. Instead of seeing faults in others, we look within ourselves. Suffer in the suffering of others and feel happy in the happiness of others. Endure all that comes, cheerfully accepting it as his will, and do not hurt or harm any of his beings. To love God, we must live for God and die for God. I would like to sow the seed of love in your hearts so that the feelings of love are brought about among all the nations, creeds, sects, and castes of the world. All saints preach the same. Love and all things shall be added unto you. Without love there is no peace here or hereafter. Kabir. Those who do not know love cannot know God. Christ. Hear ye all, I tell you the truth. God cannot be approached without love. Guru Gobind Singh. The main purpose of my master was to awaken mankind to the truth taught and preached by all saints who came in the past. His job was to awaken the divinity in every heart 
and guide each to his or her goal of life. Like the great masters of the past, he drew people of all castes and colors by living example. He awakened humanity to the fundamental, inviolable unity of all life. All mankind is one. The true brotherhood will arise by awakening to the unity already existing in man. Man is an ensouled body. Soul is a conscious entity, a drop of the ocean of all consciousness. Man is the oldest of all. Social bodies were made by man for the attainment of God. My master did not come to establish a new religion. The religion he taught is the knowledge of the self and the one behind the many, which can be achieved by tapping inside by inversion, by reading the great book of oneself where God is revealed, the book of all books, the Bible of all Bibles, which holds the key to the mystery of life. The way to truth is simple. The way is to know oneself so as to know God. When one is awakened to self-consciousness, his or her outer attachments are shaken off and God floods his or her soul. The only rules that he gave it all, if any, were meditation, pure ethical life, and selfless service. He did not say for you to cease to be a Christian, a Hindu, a Sikh, a Mohammedan, or a Zoroastrian, but to be a true follower of Christ, Lord Krishna, Guru Nanak, Prophet Muhammad or Zoroaster, that is, to do what they said. He did not ask the skeptical man or woman of today to accept any dogma, but in the spirit of humility, to obey the God reverberating in the heart of all. He advised us to look at each other from the level of the soul and not through the garbs of various religions we are wearing, and to love all. He did not advocate change of forms, but to look within oneself where all are one. He did say that whatever religion one has, it should transform our life. We should lead an ethical life. He did not bring Eastern or Western thoughts for us to act upon, but helped us to act upon the basic truth that we already have in our religions. He revived the forgotten truth that is eternal. Example is better than precept. The teacher that the age wants is a living example of what all may become. The only teacher that we can accept is one who has experienced God. He must be one who has consciously bridged the gulf between time and eternity and can show others how to do likewise. He enables us to discover ourselves. We get through him a change of heart and he has the power to transmit grace, kindle love, 
and bestow contact with the light of God. He is overflowing with the love of God and of all creation, and those who come in contact with him are enkindled with that love, and the God power working through him awakens God in others. Books cannot replace teachers. Unless one meets the teacher in the flesh, one cannot unravel the mystery of self. What a man has done, another can do, of course, with proper guidance and help. You have been put on the path, the path that leads you to the divine in you. You have been blessed with a conscious contact with the holy light and harmony, the life and soul of all that is, and you can develop your initial experience of the living contact to any length you may. It all depends on you. Where there is a will, there is a way. Strive for it ceaselessly. It is the essence of life and the greatest gift on earth. Rear it up with tender care and loving devotion, lest you may again lose hold of the lifelines in the stormy sea of life. Awake, arise, and stop not until the goal is reached. Is the time-honored message coming down as it does from eternity. And I repeat it today with all the emphasis at my command. Make hay while the sun shines. The kingdom of God verily is at hand, and the power of God unmistakably beckons you to it. Avail yourself of the golden opportunity that God has given you, for human birth is a rare privilege, and thrice blessed is man. Make the most of it while there is yet time. Let not dissensions creep into your thoughts and corrode your progress in any way. You are one of the fortunate children of invincible light. Live up to that sacred truth. Master power is always with you and will be extending you all love and grace. If we live up to the teachings, it is a panacea for all ills and evils. With fondest love to you all, Kripal Singh. I have a lot of love for that particular message. Many years ago when Judith and I were living uh, at the ashram before it actually became much of an ashram in New Hampshire, the first year after Master left, um, left America in 1964, um, we had it posted on our, the wall of our house, this particular message, in an abridged form. There was a shortened version of it that was circulated around with Master's picture on it, and we loved it. At that time, I, we had not yet seen the, the full-length version that I just read you. So we had it posted on our wall, and it so happened that we were investigated that year by the IRS for a very weird tax return. We hadn't done anything wrong, but it was a weird one. It was the year that of the 63 tour, and uh, 
I had lost my job about halfway through the year. We had spent the rest of the year touring, um, or much of it, or, or preparing, actually getting ready for the master to come. And um, there was very little income. We had managed to get by one way or another. And uh, it looked weird. So the um, the man came to talk to us, and at that time I was feeling... I was very much under the influence of the political school of thought that might be called anarchist. Um, and I was really kind of down on all government people, especially tax collectors. And I uh, was not very nice to him. Uh, his name was Mr. Peterman. And uh, he was really extremely polite to me. And I was not polite to him. And... Uh, he wanted to see the place, and I took him around and showed him. And the old man, um, actually, I, he seemed like an old man to me then, but he was younger then than I am now. As a matter of fact, Gerald Boyce, who, who just passed away last year uh, and was one of the people who started Sadhbani Ashram with Judith and me, he was working on his house, and I introduced Mr. Peterman to him. And he was actually, Gerald was very much um, of an anarchist all his life, but he was very polite to Mr. Peterman, much nicer to him than I was. Anyway, we got back to the house, and Mr. Peterman came in, and he noticed this, this particular thing that I just read you on the wall. And he got all interested, and he started to read it, Suddenly, I remembered what that said. And I suddenly, my whole point of view shifted. And instead of seeing Mr. Peterman as a government man or a tax collector, I saw he was a human being. And he was very, not only was he a human being, but he was very interested in what the Master was saying. And I, I had one of those moments that many of you may have when you when you suddenly realize that you've been doing everything wrong. And it's like all of a sudden the pit opens up at your feet and you don't know what to do next. Anyway, I just sat down. I was I was the breath was really taken away from me. And he read the whole thing with great interest and he began asking me questions about the master and what he teaches and and I answered him with this with this feeling of dread because I, I realized that I had totally not lived up to what I was now saying. I said, yeah, he teaches nonviolence and love for all. And, <laughs> and uh, he listened to me really politely with full attention. And at the end, he said, well, that sounds to me like a master plan. And then he said, you know, he was here, right? He was here a year ago. And I said, yes. He said, uh, I saw his um, picture in the paper uh, before he came. And you know, I wanted to go. But my wife had something to do that night, and it was important that I be with her, so I didn't get to go. But, but I really wanted to. He, he struck me. I really liked his face. And the whole thing was really beyond my control at that point. And I just... I didn't know what to say. I didn't even, I didn't want to acknowledge that I had been so bad at the beginning of the, 
of the time, and I I didn't. I didn't apologize, but I was a lot... I never forgot after that that he was a human being. Anyway, he left, and nothing bad never happened to us, and my subsequent tax returns were were um, more normal, but I can never I can never read this without remembering Mr. Peterman and the the way the master has of suddenly calling you on the things you take for granted. You know, I, I did not it's happened to me in other times too. People that I am discounting for one reason or other, people that that somehow are beyond the pale. I like Mr. Peterman because some label exactly what Master tells us does not matter is put on them that happens to go to coincide with coincide with some school of thought that I am subscribing to at the moment or even deeper than that some aversion that I may have it is precisely those people that I have to, Master has forced me to deal with them as a human being. No one is outside the pale. Everyone that we may come in contact with is a human being and is subject to the, the kinds of things that the Master is talking about here. And it's such an easy thing to forget. And I have forgotten it so many times. But... There it is. We can always... The thing about the Master is that he doesn't hesitate to show us when we're wrong. And he will use our failures to bring us face to face with those parts of ourselves that we didn't even realize were there. And we're blissfully engaged in finding fault with in other people. Anyway... Uh, this is a, has been one of the most meaningful of all of the Master's writings to me down through the years, partly because of that incident, but also partly because um, the things that he says here cover so much ground. When he talks about um, the timeless coming into time, you know, if we've read The Ocean of Love, we know that the, we can say the existential condition of the universe, we don't have to say that, but we can say it, is um, the, the disconnection, okay, the break between eternity and time. This is the meaning of the words, the various words for the God of love, Satpurush, Satnam, etc., one of which is Akal, which means timeless, and the negative power, usually called by the Master's Kal, which means time. Eternity and time, eternity understood as the manifestation of love, and time as the manifestation of law or judgment, are the, the two poles into which the universe that we know the fallen universe, we could say, is divided. Not that the eternity part of it fell at all, but it is affected by the fall of the 
time part, the part that is currently bound by time, the wheel of life and death, the law of karma, all of those things have to do with one thing following another in a chronological way. And all of them are short-circuited and discounted, and we can say transcended, when the timeless comes into time. That is to say, when the Word becomes flesh and dwells amongst us. Okay, which according to the esoteric tradition, and not just the esoteric Indian tradition, but the esoteric tradition all over the world, including that of Gnostic Christianity, that incarnation of the Word is, as we said last night, a perpetual process which cannot help but happen. The Word has a number of functions, and the Word here, of course, as Master defined it in this writing, is the eternal song that was sung ages ago and which produced the phenomena called the universe. The sounds that are referred to in the Bible is as the word and also in Genesis 1 as um, when God spoke, let there be light, etc. That is the representation of this. As he spoke, each of his words produced the phenomena called the universe. But those words that he spoke still exist and he is still speaking them, and they are also becoming flesh still. This is the, the beauty, we can say, the reason why, if we seek, we definitely find, because that which we are looking for is always present in the universe on the same level that we are. Anyway, when, the, when this happens, it is an invasion of time by eternity. And although, and this is why the crucifixion and things like that happen, you see, when the eternal comes into time, he has to obey the laws that Karl has set up although that is a, a part of the deal. He's like a guest from that point of view. He's here, and whatever he does, he does. But the form of what he does is to some extent dictated by the laws of the lower worlds, which is why normally the master does not do miracles, for example, in order to advertise himself, although he does plenty of miracles if people are wide open, if their eyes are wide open and they are receptive enough to see. But this invasion, we, it really constitutes a divine invasion. The poet Blake put it, eternity is ever in love with the products of time. And this is what people, as we go on the path and as we struggle with this or that, if we struggle with our own mistakes, like I have done so many times, this is the thing we should always remember and never forget because it is the fundamental truth of all. If God is love, and if we are his children, 
then it follows as night and day that he loves us. And if he loves us, he is going to do what he can. He is going to find us. He is not going to rest until we make it. If we think sometimes because of the way we're brought up, although people, God knows, are brought up very differently, but still many people have a sense of God as some kind of policeman okay, who is out to get us. And if we make the slightest mistake, ha-ha, you're no good, crump, and you are not worthy of me. This is, I mean, the theologian John Calvin, kind of the founder of mainstream Protestant Christianity, taught something very much like this. And um, I think he totally, he taught the doctrine of total depravity, that is, that human beings were so unspeakably, horribly bad that um, God couldn't possibly ever want anything to do with us, except that he chose a few of us and said, okay, um, you guys can be saved, but not others. But he totally misread, I think, the relevant passages in the Bible, including the one in which St. Paul says very specifically, in my inmost self, I love the law of God. It is absolutely clear the further we go within, the more God is there. So it's a question of um, a question of recognizing and never forgetting that God loves us and he will do what he has to do to bring us back to him. I mean, the more we cooperate with him, the easier his task is. But whether we cooperate or not, sooner or later he will do it. He must do it. He has to do it. If his nature is love, and our nature is derived from his, then how can he not do it? It's part of what being God is, is to save people. That... that picture or that image of God as a policeman that I mentioned earlier is really a, a confusion of the negative power with the God of love. The negative power, it may be said, we can think of it this way, is out to get us. That is to say, the law of karma is inexorable and uh, to the degree that we are subject to it, which is a pretty large degree for most people, um, we do have to pay off whatever we earn. But that doesn't mean that the God of love has anything to do with that, does not like it, does not want us to be everything that we can be. Sanchi has written that he is our real father. He is happy in our happiness. It is not that he wants us to suffer and be miserable that this is something he sees as a good thing, even though sometimes it is, of course, necessary in order to grow, as most of us have discovered for ourselves. But 
uh, he wants us to be happy all the same. Jesus told three stories in uh, the Gospel of Luke, chapter 15, which illustrate this point. And they, if we don't understand God in this way, then those stories don't make any sense. One is the lost sheep, which is actually told elsewhere, too, in the Bible. A farmer lost one of his sheep. He had 99 safely in the fold, but he wanted... He didn't care about them. He wanted the one that was lost. He did care about them. Excuse me, I don't mean to say that he let them go. But the point is he was not content with them. He didn't think, well, I have 99 here, but that one outside, so what about him? So he went and searched all over until he found that one sheep that was lost. Then he rejoiced and brought him back. Similarly, there, there is a story of a woman who lost a coin. She had other coins, but still she wanted that one. So she searched through the house until she found it. And when she found it, um, she was very happy. And the third one is the story of the lost son, the prodigal son, we often call it, where the father did not care what the son had done, did not care that he had made every mistake in the book, including wasting all his money that he had given him, all of the things that any of us might well find fault with somebody else for and might well legitimately have a reason to find fault with somebody else for. He didn't care about that. All he cared was, this was my son, he is lost, and now he is home. And I think we should understand that those three stories coming one after the other is the picture of God from the esoteric point of view, the spiritual point of view that is found in all traditions with, that have an understanding of the esoteric point of view. And they are, if we try to understand the teachings of Jesus in any other way, we run up against those three parables. What is the meaning of them? Why are they there then? If God doesn't want everyone to come back to him and goes after them, goes after them to get them and does what he can to bring them back and then rejoices when they come back and considers that the thing that counts, if God doesn't act like that, what's the point of those stories? What are they doing there? Any kind of Christianity or spiritual understanding connected to the teachings of Jesus that does not allow for that isn't getting it. And we should always remember God is our friend. Okay? The Master is our friend, our supporter, our well-wisher, the one who cares about us. Truly speaking, the Master and the God whom he represents are the only ones who have any sense of who we truly are. Even we don't. We don't know. We, we ourselves tend to identify ourselves in terms of our ego, of our desires, of our fears, just like everyone else. But the Master sees beyond all that. And although... He is, is not that we have, of course, licenses to misbehave. And if we follow the teachings, 
and our act in the way that the Master both tells us to act and also the way that he acts himself, then um, it becomes much easier to accomplish what we want to accomplish. The fact is that he doesn't love us any less if we mess up. There's a very famous story that I've often told. I probably told it here. In any case, you probably all know it, but I'm going to tell it anyway. Which is the story of the moneylender who went to a village to repossess a farmer who had owed him money. And he, um, when he had done that, he didn't have anybody to carry the stuff that he had to take back with him to the uh, railroad station. So he looked around and nobody wanted anything to do with him because they all hated him because of what he had done to their brother. And uh, money lenders in rural parts of India, by the way, have, have done a great deal to destroy um, by charging enormous rates and insisting on repayment. Many of the reasons that some of the largest cities in India are so overcrowded with people who have literally nowhere to go but down uh, is because a great many rural families have been forced off the farm by these kinds of practices. In any case, he was this kind of a guy. And uh, it so happened, according to the story, that there was a master living in the village, presumably a hidden saint, not someone with a large following, but perhaps not. I mean, we don't know. Masters function in different ways. Anyway, he volunteered to the man to carry the stuff for him under one condition. Either the man would talk to him the whole time that they walked, and he would listen and nod, yes, yes. Or the master would talk to the moneylender the whole time, and the moneylender would listen and nod, yes, yes. So the moneylender thought, well, this is a good deal. Okay, I'll... Um, I'll take it. And he agreed to listen. So as they walked to the station, which was about an hour away, the master explained to him what kind of a life he had led. He turned the whole thing around and he showed him the perspective that the guy did not have and could not have for himself. And the money lender at the end said, you haven't done one good deed in all your life not one, except that you have spent this time with me. Now, in a few days, you are going to die. And when you die, you are going to be taken before the Lord of Judgment. And he is going to look at your record, and he is going to tell you exactly what I just told you, that you have not done one good deed in your life, except that you once spent an hour with a saint. Do you want the reward of that now or later? When he asks you that, you tell him that you want it now. The moneylender said, all right. And a few days later he died, just as the saint had said. And he was taken before the Lord of Judgment. And the Lord of Judgment looked at his record. And he said, well, according to this, you haven't... You have done no good deeds, never done a good deed in your life, not one, except that you once spent an hour in the company of a saint. 
your reward for that is to spend two minutes with him on the inner planes. Do you want that now or later? And the man remembered what the master had said to him. He said, now. I'll take it now, please. So I said, all right. And he got a couple of angels of death to accompany him. And the angels of death took him to the part of the inner planes where that master was holding satsang. Now on the physical plane, he was somebody who was available in a village to carry the guy's stuff on his head. On the inner planes, he was holding satsang for thousands and thousands of people and was treated with great honor because um, he was... His true nature was not hidden there. In any case, um, the man, when they got there, the angel said to the man, all right, we can't go any closer than this. They were way at the outskirts of the Sangha. We can't go any closer than this because we can't go near him. But you go on in, and after you have spent, when you get there, you have two minutes with him. And when you have finished, when that two minutes is up, then you come back out. We will wait for you. He said, all right. And he went in and made his way to the front. And the master saw him and he said, well, you have come. And the money lender said, yes, master, I have come. But I am very afraid because I saw what was going on to some sinners on the way up here. And I only have two minutes with you and then I'm going to have to go back. And he said, who says you have to go back? Who says? You're here now. They can't come in. Sit down. You're with me. Don't worry. So the man sat down and was with him from then on. Now, my point is, first of all, the power of the master is obviously one of the points of the story. And what darshan really is, I mean, a great many of us have had the same kind of time with the master. You know, we have spent an hour with him or um, a lot more than that. If, for example, we were at St. Bani during the last tour, we spent many hours in his company through satsangs, group meditation, darshan, etc. Um, perhaps we don't realize exactly how powerful spending time with the master is other things not even being counted. But beyond that, the, what the story means to me, why it's one of my favorite stories, is that here we have the protagonist of the story is a man who never did one good deed in his whole life. And in fact, his livelihood was gotten in one of the worst possible ways and there is no this is not mitigated in the course of the story the story isn't saying well it's okay to be this kind of a money lender and that it's a good thing to uh, never do good deeds uh, etc it doesn't say anything like that it accepts all that face value but the point is what did the master see who looked at him when he came up to him in the village and offered to carry his stuff what did he see? He saw a child of God who was lost. 
just like the farmer after his sheep, just like the woman after her coin, just like the father with his son, he saw here is somebody who is suffering. And what he cared about was helping him. And he proceeded to deal with him from the level of his soul, which is just exactly what the Master does with us. Now, we may not be that bad, and the chances of our being that bad are actually quite huge. Um, I mean, excuse me, quite small. Um, sometimes I get mathematical formulas mixed up. Sometimes it can be very confusing. Um, chances are quite tiny, I would say, that we could be anything like that guy. But that should give us the fact that that story is out there and the masters tell it. If we ever feel like we're not worthy of, um, of the grace of the master, which of course is a, a misunderstanding of what grace is, which has nothing to do with worthiness to begin with. If we ever think that we're not good enough and we'll never make it because we don't deserve to and that sort of thing, just remember the guy in the story, the moneylender, and how the master worked it so that he could save him too even him. Whatever we talked yesterday about Ajamal the sinner and the, the way the master used his desire for a son to make it possible for him to be saved. He mentioned the man, the greedy man and the three stuffed japatis and how um, the master used his own greed to make sure that he was saved. The master Whatever is there to use to make us do what we have to do in order for us to be able to receive his grace and to make use of it. And he will not stop until he has done it. We can think of the Master's mission as an endless series, or we should probably more correct to say simultaneous series of dealings with people not so different from the master with the moneylender. Whenever what the master does with people, there is the famous story of Guru Nanak walking with Mardana in uh, the Punjab. It's a part of a Punjab now in Pakistan, but um, there was a, a holy man, a Muslim holy man named Vali Kandari who lived um, on top of a hill in that area. And he was a very, I say holy man in quotes, he was a very um, um, strict and fearful kind of guy who didn't like anyone to have any other guru except him so that he had the only water for miles around was on his property. He had a pond. It was on, on the hill near his house. And he would not let anyone drink from it unless they became his disciple. So they were, Guru Nanak and Mardana were walking along at the bottom of the hill. And um, Mardana was very thirsty. So Guru Nanak said, all right, there's a pond 
up on the top of this hill, go on up and ask the man who lives there for a drink. So Mardana went up and he asked for a drink and Vali Kandari said, well, do you know my condition? No one can drink from this unless they accept me as their master. And Mardana said, I have a master. Why do I want you? I'm a disciple of Guru Nanak, who's the greatest master of this age, and I'm not interested in being your disciple. And Vali Kandari said, then you can't have any water. And he wouldn't let him. So Mardana went down and told him, but he was still thirsty. Guru Nanak said, well, Mardana, maybe you weren't polite enough. Go up and ask him really humbly and politely and tell him how thirsty you are. Maybe he'll give you some water. This is an example, by the way, of the kind of thing we were talking about last night also because Guru Nanak knew very well that Vale Kandari was not going to give Mardana any water, but he wanted him to try again anyway. There were reasons why, the working out of what happened, he had to do that. So Mardana went back up, but it was still the same. And Mardana came down and he said, I'm dying of thirst, but I am not going to ask that egotist anymore. I've had enough. I've, he's too much for me. And Guru Nanak said, um, all right, then we'll have to bring the water down here. And using his power, he created a channel and brought the pond down to the bottom of the hill. And Mardana was able to drink. And of course that meant that it left Vali Kandari's land and he no longer had it. And he was furious and using his power, he pushed a huge boulder that was at the top of the mountain down onto Guru Nanak and Mardana. And uh, the story says, and Master Kapal has, as well as Sanchi, has told this story that Guru Nanak stopped it with his palm. He put his palm up and in a sense caught the boulder on his palm and it remained, it did not hurt them. And the boulder is still there. Um, it was for a while until the um, creation of Pakistan anyway, a great place of Sikh pilgrimage. And with Guru Nanak's handprint on the rock, Master Kripal mentioned that specifically. Anyway, at that point, Vali Kandari understood what was going on and he saw what an idiot he had been and he apologized to Guru Nanak who initiated him. This is how he punished him. I should. I, I'm, he accepted his apology, he initiated him and according to Sanchi's story, the, the most mind-blowing line of all, he made him his representative in the area so that... Um, he could work out what he had to work out. And this is the way the master's understanding of people and of bad things they do, and of good things they do, is different from ours. It's different from ours because their perspective is different from ours. They are seeing the whole human being, time and eternity, all dimensions at once. They understand what has to be done in order to... Um, bring him back to where he or she wants to be. This is why sometimes people, when we master tells us something, we'll write him a letter or we'll get a chance to talk to him in an interview in India maybe. And uh, his answer will not make sense to us. And sometimes it seems like he's just telling us 
to do something that we have already been doing. Or sometimes it just doesn't seem to be relevant. Um, and we will be very puzzled and sometimes get very annoyed and we won't want to do it. But I will tell you that when this happens, it is because the Master's perspective and ours are not compatible on a given point. And it is important for us at that time to take very literally what he says and to do our best to do it. And I guarantee you that we will see, as it works out, what's going on here. And the times in my life when I have done this been the times when I both learned something and also did get what I wanted. When I wasn't able to do this, those are the times when I learned nothing and I did not get what I wanted. So it's, it's because of this that the, um, the Master, sometimes it is not possible to present things to us in a way that um, we can understand what we have to do does not always fit easily enough into where we are at for us to be able to get any benefit from it if it were put in those terms. So it's important to um, always remember that. You know, I will I will um, close with um, one story, um, which connects with what we've been saying, what the Master said in the reading about that a person of realization can bring about a real change. This was also in the reading last night, connection with the spiritual revolution too. Uh, when Judith and I were in India the first time, which was in 1965, at the World Religions Conference. Master Kripal Singh was the president of the World Fellowship of Religions. And this was the third conference that that body held. And we were supposedly delegates. We were actually just there as disciples, but we did attend every meeting of the conference. And uh, we were counted as delegates because we were from America. A great many uh, people were delegates, however. Some very impressive people. And a very large number of yogis and sadhus and swamis, Hindu holy men and holy men of other, uh, Jain and Parsi and uh, Buddhist also were there. And there were Christian clergy too. An archbishop was there. Um, from Bulgaria. Um, there were, it was a very interesting time. And I had always had a fascination with, with Indian holy men and women. 
uh, ever since I read Paramhansa Yogananda's autobiography as a seeker. And all of a sudden, uh, there they were. I mean, they were all over the place. And some of them were very impressive. There was this one particular yogi uh, that I noticed uh, because he had very weird eyes. His name was Surya Dev, and um, he was. Um, I didn't. I was afraid of him. I didn't. I wasn't drawn to him. I'll put it that way. And he did nothing. And he was there at the conference, and he attended all the sessions, usually on the dais. He gave talks, and he was a good friend of another yogi who seemed like a very sweet man, Swami Arvindananda. Anyway, uh, the day after the conference ended, Master Kripal held a a big, like a party, a tea party, at the ashram grounds for all the delegates. And Judith and I were also there. And um, this, uh, practically everyone who had been at the conference as a delegate was there. And Suryadev was there. And somehow or other, for some reason that I, I never did understand why this happened, he lost his temper on the on the ashram grounds. Now, this is a yogi of obviously some power. And when someone like that loses their temper, this is no small thing. I mean, it was like he was erupting with with anger. I mean, we use terms like exploding with anger or foaming at the mouth and so forth to describe this is the first time that I ever saw anyone really do those things. I mean, he was literally foaming at the mouth. And exploding is the only way I can describe it. Absolute madman. And uh, people were backing away from him, and I was terrified. And Master came up to him, and he just, without even, he didn't say anything, he just put his hand up on his face like this, and he pulled it down. He had his other hand on his back, and he pulled his face down like this, down to his chest. And the anger, as he brought his hand down, you could see the anger leaving that guy. And it just evaporated. And when, when Master had finished, it took about 10 seconds. When Master had finished, he was absolutely calm. He was standing there, and there was no question of anything like that. So I was extremely impressed with every aspect of this scene. And a couple of days later, I had an opportunity to ask the master about how a yogi of power could lose his temper like that. I said, obviously, he seemed that he had really accomplished something. And the master said, this ego is the last thing to go. You can accomplish a great deal and go very far within and still be under the influence of ego. And um, that will enable you to do things like this. You can still fail very badly. And, and if you fail in that condition, of course, you are failing with all the power at your command, which multiplies everything enormously, karmically speaking. But that is what, when the Master talked about, when the Masters talk about, all Masters talk about loving and bringing peace. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. 
when people talk about this kind of thing, the master is someone who is it. By coming under his influence, coming into his ambit, being connected with him, taking hold of his little finger, as he puts it, we also participate in that. The grace that that kind of power produces, the grace that comes from someone who is able to deal with people like that, that grace is also sufficient to envelop us. And it does, and it will. And we have that, that is part of our heritage. When Master says thrice blessed, you know, in this, what man has done, a man can do, of course, with proper guidance and help. Human birth is a great privilege for thrice blessed is man. He means that there are three possible blessings for human beings. Human birth is the first one. That's the blessing of God on us. Initiation is the second, and that's the blessing of the Master on us. But going within, reaching such kind, becoming one with the Master is the third, and that is our blessing upon ourselves. <coughs> Because although the Master will do everything he can to trick us into doing it, or to help us into doing it, or to get us to do it somehow or other, the fact is that we have to do that. Sooner or later, we have to do it. The Master will see that we do it, but still, it is our personal work, which Master Kripal referred to many times, our real work our personal work, not work that we do for somebody else, but work that we do for our own selves, is going within and becoming one with God. All right. Um, thank you all for your patient hearing. And we can close with another bhajan. Um, somebody wants to lead it.